Welcome to the Dairy to Growth podcast. This is Guilherme, and I will be hosting this episode about transition period and reproduction of dairy cows. So today's guest is Dr. Eduardo Ribeiro. Uh, Eduardo, thank you for taking the time and participating. Thanks for having me, Guilherme. It's uh, my pleasure to be here talking with you in this podcast. Okay, that's great. So Dr. Ribeiro is an associate professor in the Department of Animal Bioscience at the University of Guelph. And we will have a, a very insightful conversation on fertility of dairy cows and factors affecting pregnancy, including uh, transition cow health, long-term effects of disease, and prevention strategies. So, Eduardo, could you share with us a little bit about your background and experience with dairy cows? Yes, of course, uh, Glamy. So, like you, I'm originally from Brazil, and uh, I grew up uh, in a small family farm, um, helping my mom and dad to milk cows by hand and make artisanal cheese, working beef cows with uh, horses. So it was a lot of fun growing up, uh, everything involving farming. So. So that's how I uh, got involved with agriculture and uh, and livestock, basically. And then in 2008, I graduated in veterinary medicine at the Santa Catarina State University. So it's a, it's a good uh, vet school close to our hometown. And uh, the plan initially was to be a bovine practitioner. But uh, during my veterinary studies, I got involved with the research. Uh, I received a scholarship to be an undergrad research assistant. And um, I was doing research on in vitro fertilization and cloning uh, in cattle. And, um, and also some extension work with uh, local dairy farms and uh, then I kind of changed my mind. I decided I want to pursue a career in research, and uh, my main interest was uh, reproductive biology and, and dairy farming. So when I finished vet school, then I moved to Florida in Gainesville uh, to do a, a Master of Sciences and a, eventually a PhD uh, in the Animal Sciences Department at the University of Florida. And uh, so I spent six years there working um, with reproductive management and reproductive physiology of dairy cows. And uh, I was very fortunate to work with excellent uh, scientists and uh, excellent dairy farmers as well. Uh, I had this experience of working in very large farms with uh, uh, 5,000 lactating cows in, in some cases. and. Uh, was able to get a lot of experience from there. So it was a, a great time in the Gator Nation there. And uh, when I finished my PhD, then I moved to Guelph uh, for the current position that I have. So I've been uh, here for uh, seven years now. Um, I teach uh, animal reproduction and animal health to undergrad and graduate students in the Department of Animal Biosciences. And I lead a reproductive, uh, uh, I did a research program in reproductive health of dairy cows. Okay, great. So 
for those that uh, doesn't know, Eduardo is also my advisor. So this is a very special episode and we will talk about topics that I like a lot as well. Um, and the first topic, the first part of this podcast, we, we will talk a little bit about fertility of their cows and trying to understand um, a little bit better reproduction. So, Eduardo, uh, why reproduction is so important for productivity, profitability, and also uh, sustainability of dairy farming? Yeah, so for if we think about heifers, uh, reproductive efficiency will determine the age of first calving. And uh, basically will determine when heifers will start to make a revenue and kind of pay back the investment that was made up to that point. And it will also determine the rearing cost of that heifer. So basically the longer it takes for that heifer to care for the first time, uh, greater will be the cost associated with uh, uh, feeding and labor uh, of uh, heifers. So that would increase uh, costs, rearing costs. So, so that's the main relevance for the heifer side, I would say. Um, the lactating herd, uh, then reproductive efficiency will affect uh, the cooling of the herd. So uh, to stay in the herd, a cow needs to become pregnant again. So that's a major factor on, on cooling decisions. But it also affects the distribution of daisy milk of your lactating herd. Uh, so basically, you want cows or a larger portion of your cows in early stages of lactation when they are producing more milk and the income over feed costs are better than in later stages of lactation when cows produce less milk and the uh, income over feed costs is not as good as in early lactation. So the way that you change this distribution is by reproductive efficiency. So uh, improving repro efficiency, you reduce the calving interval, you reduce the average days open on the herd. So in general, your herd will produce more milk and they will be more profitable. So that will help with profitability and with production efficiency. So it will help with uh, uh, the sustainability of dairy production as well. Okay, great. So, okay, now we understand uh, how important reproduction is. Uh, could you could you give us an overview of pregnancy losses in dairy cow, considering that pregnancy losses is something that negatively affects uh, reprodu reproductive performance? Yes, uh, so pregnancy losses is one of the most important reasons of uh, reproductive failures in livestock in general, uh, but particularly important in dairy cows. Um, it, it could be defined as any fertilized egg that failed to survive to term. Uh, does it entail uh, those early pregnancy losses? when the developing embryo dies and the producers don't even realize that the cow was pregnant because it was too early for a pregnancy diagnosis. Uh, and also those, what we call the late pregnancy losses, which occur when a cow is confirmed pregnant by ultrasound or rectal palpation, uh, but eventually they lose that pregnancy. 
So the incidence of pregnancy losses will vary substantially from heart to heart. But in general, early pregnancy losses are more prevalent than late pregnancy losses, but late pregnancy losses are more costly to producers. So in any case, uh, they will be important. Okay, so if we think, um, perhaps we could uh, get the cow pregnant early, but if she lost the pregnancy, it's gonna, we're gonna have to do it again and uh, it takes time, right? But so considering that your research has been focusing on early pregnancy losses and you already mentioned a little bit about it, um, let's talk uh, about embryo development. So what happens inside the cow after breeding? Yes, great question, Grammy. So um, let's assume that a cow had an ovulation uh, shortly after uh, insemination and uh, fertilization happens successfully. Then that zygote uh, will start to have uh, cell divisions that we call cleavage. So it will become a two-cell embryo, four-cell embryo, 16. Eventually, we call that a moroline embryo and it becomes a blastocyst. So those cell divisions and the first rounds of cell differentiation happens in the first week of development. Then at that point, uh, that embryo will start to grow in size and will eventually hatch from the zona pellucida, which is a membrane that covers uh, the entire embryo. And now that embryo will have a direct contact with the endometria of the cow and we start uh, what we call a crosstalk with that endometrium. So basically the embryo will signal to the endometrium, hey, I need this, and the endometrium will respond sending the right nutrients, the correct signals for that embryo to continue to develop. Then uh, around the 13, 14 of development, that embryo is still in kind of an ovoid shape, then it goes to a process that we call elongation, where it basically will become a, a filamentous structure very rapidly. So imagine that this ovoid uh, conceptus, we say conceptus because it's the embryo plus the extra embryonic membranes. So that ovoid conceptus that has one millimeter of uh, diameter within three days will become a filamentous structure of 200 millimeters, 20 centimeters. So uh, cells are proliferating really fast and there's a lot of uh, process that coordinate um, the biology of those cells for that elongation to happen. Then uh, we have the opposition of those cells with the endometrial. They start to attach to the endometrium and that's the beginning of placentation. And um, and then uh, around the 28:30 is when producers are able to visualize that embryo by ultrasonography examination, and we have the continuation of placentation and fetal development. But those early stages, uh, in a simplified uh, manner, this is what is happening there that uh, not many people know what is happening, right? Because it's before they can do a pregnancy diagnosis. Sure, yes. So um, 
that's very interesting that to know that in the second week uh, this process of elongation of the conceptus starts and um, it makes sense to associate early pregnancy losses with failures during this process of elongation, right? And I know that um, you have been uh, looking at this, this, uh, the failures in this process. So what, what did you learn before research on uh, this topic? Yes, yeah, so a lot of the pregnancy losses, they seem to occur during weeks two, three, and four of development. And that's the time when the elongation is happening. Um, so, yes, uh, we believe that some of the embryos, they fail to elongate. Uh, but more importantly, I think some of the embryos, they elongate, but not very efficiently or not properly. And we believe that this has consequences for the subsequent uh, development of pregnancy. So it can also affect uh, it will also affect the survival of that pregnancy later on. So, so that's why we, we think the elongation is so important. Some don't make it. Some make it, but not properly. And that has consequences for uh, the survival of that pregnancy as well. Okay. So, well, we learned that reproduction is important and pregnancy losses compromise efficiency and in general uh, what would be the factors associated with pregnancy failures yeah that's a great question Jeremy. so i think uh, the general agreement is that there is a small genetic component involved and a large environmental effect and by environment here i mean I mean, like everything not associated with the genetics, so it includes the nutrition of the cow, their overall health and well-being. So these factors will determine the quality of the eggs of the cow and the uterine environment, uh, which ultimately will be the factors affecting the likelihood of that embryo to survive to term or not. Okay. Uh, well, it, great. It, so. It, it, if I can add a little bit, I think it's also important to say that the sire has an effect as well, right? So we keep, uh, of course, my research program is focused more on the female side. But if you think about, there are some bulls that have a high rate of pregnancy losses than others, uh, which are likely related uh, not only with their genetics, but also with their overall health and environment of those bulls, which the farmers don't have a lot of control. And everything, all those factors, the genetics and the environment of that bull, they are basically imprinted in that semen that is using on the farm. And they will impact also the chances of that pregnancy to survive. So there is also a male component there. Okay, great. Um... Yeah, so we talked a little bit about reproduction and let's jump to the second topic uh, of this podcast and it's also a very important topic in our research program, which is uh, transition period and transition health. So another important factor that affects not only reproduction, but also uh, general performance of their cows is the transition period. So could you explain to us why the transition period uh, needs everyone's, everyone's attention? 
Yeah, so the transition period, just uh, maybe not everyone listening to this podcast is familiar. So it, in, it entails the weeks preceding and those following calving. So uh, it's, it's one of the most challenging periods for dairy cows because a lot of changes is happening in terms of their physiology, their metabolism, and um, you know, just becoming a mom, uh, which it, uh, has uh, some uh, challenges involved, of course. So um, with all the changes that are happening, there's an increasing susceptibility to metabolic problems and diseases during this time. And um, the characteristics of the transition period, whether the cow had or did not have those metabolic problems, uh, uh, clinical diseases, uh, seem to have enduring effects on the subsequent milk production, reproduction, and by consequence on the uh, likelihood of that cow staying in the herd. So, so that's why that transition period is so important because it will determine uh, the success of the subsequent lactation cycle. Okay, great. So now we know um, what is transition period and why this is important. And my next question is, what are the consequences of a bad or unsuccessful transition period? And also, for how long the effects of this un unsuccessful transition period can persist? Yeah, that's an excellent question, uh, Glarmy. And it's, it's not very easy to, uh, let's say, classify a, a transition period in terms of its quality. It's something complex that depends on a lot of factors. And um, we still don't have, a, a, I would say, a mechanism of classification of transition quality. We are working on that. Other groups are working on that. Um, but there are some factors that occur or not during transition that we, we know are associated with quality. And one of them is the incidence of clinical disease. So when we compare uh, what happened with cows that had or did not have clinical disease during transition, uh, we observe that uh, those diseases have long-term consequences on milk production, reproduction, and uh, cooling of, uh, of dairy farms. So basically, uh, if you think about a cow that becomes sick, she drops milk production because she's just sick, right? She's not eating well, but uh, producers have a good mechanism of uh, diagnosing those problems, treating, and those cows will recover. Um, in most of the cases, uh, in a few days, they will be clinically healthy again. So milk production at this time is going up, back up again, but what our research suggests is that this milk production will never reach the potential that this cow would have without that disease. So in addition to that initial drop in milk production, which we call the immediate losses in milk production, there are also long-term losses in milk production, which uh, they reduce over time, but they seem to last for the entire lactation cycle. So, um, so those are the consequences in, in milk production. For reproduction, uh, there is uh, the first consequence of disease is that they will take longer to resume astrocyclicity. 
And especially in herds that rely a lot on acid detection for breeding, if you have more anovular cows, then it becomes a problem because it will delay the first breeding of those animals. So you can go around those problems if you use uh, systematic breeding programs uh, with fertility treatments um, that will make sure that uh, cows are bred in a timely manner. However, those cows, they have a history of disease. So again, they had disease, they were treated, they recover. Now they are healthy, but they have this history of disease. Uh, they are less likely to become pregnant after an insemination. And when they become pregnant, they are more likely to lose the pregnancy. So um, based on some research that we uh, did, uh, this effect on uh, pregnancy per AI, on the ability of the cow become pregnant, it seems to last up to 150 uh, days in milk. And uh, the effect on pregnancy losses seem to last for the entire lactation. Um, so that's how long those long-term effects, those enduring effects of disease uh, can last. Um, and then as a consequence, because cows are producing less milk and the reproduction is not as good, then of course they are more likely to leave the herd. And a consequence of that is that will affect the longevity of the cow, uh, will affect the lifetime uh, production uh, of that animal. So he, uh, that's another consequence of those uh, transition problems. Okay, great. So uh, like you mentioned, those uh, transition uh, problems, those diseases, um, can affect milk production, culling, and also reproduction. And I know that another important part of your research program is the investigation on how these long-term effects of disease are regulated. So can you explain to us how inflammation is involved on this topic and how farmers could manage uh, this? Yes, yeah, so uh, we we don't fully understand why cows that are treated, they are clinically recovered, they, they look just normal, they still don't perform as well as cows that never had a, a, a health problem. And we want to understand how those consequences are mediated. And one of the things that have called our attention is the degree of inflammation that those cows have. So one consequence of those clinical diseases is systemic inflammation. And in some cases, it seems that this inflammation process is bigger than what it should be or more than necessary. And, and that has consequences for uh, milk production and reproduction. So we've tried to find experimental methods that try to isolate the inflammation from other consequences of disease. And uh, it seems that inflammation per se also has an impact on, on those traits. And so we are trying to find um, uh, management strategies to uh, regulate 
postpartum inflammation, especially in cows that uh, have uh, clinical problems. So uh, a way of doing this is simple, it's just the use of anti-inflammatory drugs, um, incorporating those drugs as a, in the treatment protocols for diseases. There's a study from Europe that shows the benefit of incorporation of uh, meloxicam in treatment protocol of clinical mastitis. So the, the, they show that the reproduction after that case of mastitis is improved if you incorporate um, uh, meloxicam, which is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug in the treatment protocol. And recently we tested that for metritis and we found similar results. So when we add uh, meloxicam in the treatment protocol for um, metritis, which is based on antibiotics, um, then uh, the subsequent milk production and reproduction of those cows was improved and closer to uh, the milk production and reproduction of cows that did not have metritis. Not the same, it would be an intermediate value, but uh, was better than the cow, the cows treated only with antibiotics and closer to uh, those uh, that did not have a disease. And so, so that's uh, uh, one of the things that we are exploring: the use of um, uh, drugs um, to control inflammation. But you can also do that uh, through the diet of the cow. And uh, one thing that we are exploring now is the use of uh, um, omega-3 fatty acids, which have anti-inflammatory properties, and uh, trying to understand if that can uh, improve the regulation of, in of postpartum inflammation and improving the feed efficiency of those cows and uh, reproduction efficiency. And you're highly involved in those projects, Guilherme. Uh, Guilherme is an excellent PhD student in the lab and doing a lot of interesting work on fatty acids in the uterine environment. And so there's a lot to, to discover on that part yet, right, Glenn? So we're still working on that, but it's something that we are excited about as well. Sure. sure. Uh, lots of really nice things coming up um, on omega-3 fatty acids. And, well, let's jump to, the, to, to our last topic and talk a little bit more about transition health. But now... Um, let's focus on prevention strategies. Um, so we started talking about fertility, embryo development, and pregnancy losses. And then we touched on transition period and the long-term effects of disease or inflammation, like you were, you were saying. Um, and now let's talk about solutions and preventions. So uh, when should dairy farmers start worrying about a good transitioning to lactation. Yeah, it's a great point, Guilherme. So it's interesting because on my experience, farmers that do a good job with transition period, they do a good job in general. They Everything is good about their farm, and, and that tells a lot uh, about... Uh, you know how they face the challenges in in the dairy farm, but um, we've learned a lot uh, in recent years of what's a good way to manage cows. 
especially in the prepartum period, to avoid uh, health problems and as a consequence improve uh, the subsequent uh, performance of those animals. So I guess the first thing that is really critical is to avoid uh, fat cows uh, dry off, right? So uh, we know that you should be targeting cows at dry off to be a body condition score of three, three, two, five. So then if you have some that are 275 is still fine, but you don't want them to be too skinny, two and a half, you don't want that. If you go a little bit over 3.5, you're still probably fine, but you definitely don't want a 375 there because those cows are more likely to have problems during the dry period and after calving. So if you dry off cows with this ideal body condition score, then you want to offer a prepartum diet that will allow those cows to maintain their body conditioning score during the dry period. So they will calve also with that body conditioning score of three, three to five. Um, so those animals, they compare with animals with high body conditioning score, especially they will be less likely to have uh, metabolic problems and clinical problems, and they will have a better performance after. And in terms of uh, how to formulate that prepartum diet, we have a lot of information now on how to, you know, uh, what type of forages we should use, protein sources, what's the energy density, the ideal energy density of that diet, and what the main supplements we should be using that will benefit the health of those cows during transition. So um, farmers now can discuss this with their nutritionists and there's a lot of uh, information there and alternatives to improve um, that management, uh, nutrition management of those cows. Uh, the nutrition management of fresh cows is something that we still don't have a lot of information. And I think it's something that we'll learn a lot in, in the coming years. Uh, because people are putting a lot of focus on that now, on how to feed uh, fresh cows. And if we actually need a fresh cow diet or if we can go straight to that lactating cow diet. Uh, so there will be a lot of uh, uh, information, I believe, coming in the next uh, few years on how to manage the fresh cows. And in addition to this, of course, is to stimulate feed intake. Uh, this is very important. Uh, cows that have a better feed intake during transition, they are more, they are healthier, they perform better. And, you know, uh, avoiding any sources of stress, social stress, biological stress, uh, diseases, uh, this will be uh, uh, critical for the success of transition. Great. Um... And I have a follow-up follow question here. So how do you see technologies um, supporting producers and cows um, during the transition period? Yeah, so uh, sensors are becoming more and more popular in, in dairy farms, and uh, they've been used um, successfully to uh, help on diagnosis of disease. So some of those sensors can indicate changes in rumination, changes in physical activity, 
and uh, that is connected with the health status of that cow. So that information helps produce uh, producers to uh, do diagnosis of disease. And early diagnosis of disease is important because the faster you cure that problem, uh, smaller will be the consequences later on, right? So the longer they stay sick, uh, larger will be the consequences on milk production, reproduction later. So it's important to have that early diagnosis of disease and treatment, an effective treatment to solve the problems. And the other thing that we are exploring now is if there is additional use of that information from sensors and one thing that we're trying to explore is if we can use that information from those sensors in the prepartum period to classify cows based on their risk of developing a health problem after calving. And uh, we've recently finished a study on this area that we were able, by looking at rumination, to separate a group of cows, approximately 20% of the herd, where the incidence of postpartum uh, health problems were was increased, uh, the odds ratio was kind of uh, three times bigger uh, for um, clinical diseases after calving. And as a consequence, they produced less milk, reproduction was compromised, cooling was increased. So uh, now uh, we still need to optimize how to use that information and validate that in multiple herds. But eventually, if we're able to use that information to classify cows based on risk of postpartum problems, then we can try to develop uh, new management strategies to reduce the health problems in that subgroup of groups and make them to become a low-risk cow, basically. So, so that's the idea. So I think there will be uh, more developments coming in the future of uh, additional use of those sensor information, which is great. Okay, that's very interesting. Uh, yeah, so we're getting we're getting close to the end here, but um, so we have been talking about transition period and transition health. Um, you also mentioned that um, there are some nutritional strategies um, that we could use during this period, and I know that. Uh, you have another very interesting study on trace minerals supplementation uh, through the transition period. So could you talk a little bit about uh, this study? Yes, of course. Uh, so trace minerals are a very small component of the diet, but they are very important because basically every tissue um, in the cow's organism will, will need those trace minerals for proper functioning of uh, enzymes, and they are very important for oxidative balance, for immune cell function. Um, and there are different ways of supplementing trace minerals. The uh, conventional way of supplementing is just using salts of trace minerals, of inorganic trace minerals. Um, they are easy to find, they are cheap, and uh, but there is some evidence that their bioavailability might be compromised because of other interactions with other dietary factors and uh, alternative to that is organic trace minerals and there are also studies with hydroxy trace minerals which are also inorganic but they have a different 
chemical bound between molecules are covalent bounds and they are more stable in the digestive tract. And those alternative sources uh, are believed to have greater bioavailability for absorption of those trace minerals. So you could improve the trace mineral status of those cows and by consequence improve uh, immunity, health and performance of those animals. So uh, we did a large study uh, the Ontario um, Dairy Research Centre, and um, we enrolled 273 cows with individual uh, uh, feeding, and we basically allocating two groups, 100% uh, inorganic trace minerals or 100% organic trace minerals to see if there was uh, an advantage of uh, replacing those inorganic trace minerals by organic trace minerals. And we've, we found a lot of interesting things, like uh, feed intake during transition was improved by the use of organic trace minerals. There were some changes in uh, rooming physiology associated with that. And um, there was a reduction in the incidence of lameness and some of the metabolic problems during transition. And uh, we saw some improvements in uh, embryonic development in the subsequent cycle, which were very interesting. And um, because we enroll a, a good number of cows for a nutritional study with individual feeding, um, and we have a, a good number of heifers, another important aspect was to see the difference in responses between heifers and older cows to this nutritional strategy. And uh, it seems that for heifers, it was not very good for milk production. They produce a little bit less milk. Uh, as a consequence, they had better body condition score and they resume astrocyclicity earlier, but milk production was compromised with the replacement of inorganic trace minerals the organic sources and uh, we don't know exactly why that happened but I think it's important because we have very little information on how to feed heifers the first lactating cows uh, first uh, lactation cows uh, pardon and um, in this study we had 100 heifers so 15 each treatment group and that uh, show us that it's important to differentiate those two groups of cows that what is good for one type a cow might not be good for the other one. So I think that was also an important um, finding of our study. Okay, great. Thanks for, for sharing uh, the results on this study. And well, before we finish this episode, I have a more uh, broad question and I would like to hear your thoughts on how dairy farming looks like in the future since now we have uh, lots of digital technologies big data sets and robotic systems that's a it's an interesting question uh Glamy. it feels that i'm in your qualifying now i should be asking <laughs> those questions to you <laughs> but but it's it's very interesting question because uh you know uh, to me it's a very uh, exciting time to be involved with the dairy industry. If you look at back at uh, 
how things change in recent years. It's just amazing to see uh, how better we the industry got in, in many aspects. And I think that will continue in the future. So all those technologies will continue to use and I'm pretty sure that they will become better and uh, more effective in helping farmers to uh, do what they need to do. And there will be new technologies being developed and incorporated. The dairy farm is very open to new technologies, to new developments, to tackle uh, challenges that they face. So uh, I'm, I, what I see for the future is dairy farms continue to improve, uh, continue to produce uh, high quality protein in uh, effective and sustainable way uh, and getting better and better over the years. And um, so it's a great time to be involved with the dairy industry. If you're a scientist or if you're a farmer or you know, if you're uh, in the ally industry around the dairy farms, um, it's, it's good because things change rapidly and, uh, uh, and we are facing the challenges we have the best way possible, I, I, I think. And, uh, and that's exciting to me. Great. Yes. <laughs> thank you very much. Well, so this is the end of this episode, and I would like to thank you, Dr. Ribeiro, for this very interesting conversation about transition period and reproduction uh, of their cows. Thank you, Glamy. It was uh, a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Also, I would like to thank everyone that uh, listened to us. Uh, I hope you like it. So please share uh, this podcast with your network and help us uh, promoting the art wealth. Thank you very much.